Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. Hello, and welcome to another installment of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. I'm Matt Madsen, and I serve as the Director of Training for the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance's National Office. I'm joined today by a special guest and a wonderful ally to DBSA, Dr. Ellen Frank. Dr. Frank is Professor of Psychiatry and Psychology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and Director of the Depression and Manic Depression Prevention Program at the Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Under grants from the National Institute of Mental Health, Dr. Frank has studied such things as the efficacy of interpersonal and social rhythm therapy, a psychotherapy she and her colleagues developed for the adjunctive treatment of manic depressive illness. She's also conducted a study of women with recurrent depression in which she examined how psychobiology, life stress, and different doses of psychotherapy interact to increase or decrease vulnerability to the new episodes of depression. DBSA was very blessed to have Dr. Frank serve as chair of our 65-member scientific advisory board from 1997 up until this past year. I should sum all this up by saying that, Dr. Frank, you are considered among the utmost authorities in the world on mood disorders and their treatment, and we're very happy to have you join us today. Welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Tell us, uh, let's start off by you telling us some of the exciting things you're working on right now. Well, I think the thing I'm most excited about is a project that is just starting the fifth and final year um, of uh, of its five-year length. Um, in this project, we're trying to figure out whether we can identify before we start treatment which depressed patients would benefit most from psychotherapy and which depressed patients would benefit most from medication. Um, it may seem incredible, but right now, other than severity, we really don't have any markers that tell us this patient is really somebody who should start treatment with medication. This patient is really somebody who should start treatment with psychotherapy. And we think that's a very, very important distinction. So we're just about to dig into the data and we're really, really hopeful that we may um, be able to create profiles that um, clinicians sitting in offices could use to say, you know, Jane, based on the these uh, self-report instruments you filled out, I think you're the kind of person who would really be best off starting with uh, a psychotherapy. So we'll see how it goes. How great would that be to not have to try yeah. and fail our way through treatment, exactly. but, uh, but to know beforehand. Exactly. And and we, we hope also to be able to identify those people who really seem to need the combination. And we might as well start the combination from the beginning. So. Um, come back to me in another six months, and I may have some answers for you. <laughs> All right. Well, we're excited about that. Now, it, obviously, you're known as a leading researcher in the field of mood disorders, but you're also known as a mental health professional who is connected to the real needs and experiences of people living with these illnesses. How do you keep that connection to those with a lived experience? Well, I, I've never stopped seeing patients. And for researchers, it's always a kind of double-edged sword. Do you see the patients in your own research study and kind of let your biases enter in, or do you not? Um, And when I was first 
starting out and didn't have much funding, of course I had to see patients in my own studies. Now I've got the luxury of enough funding that, that I um, can actually have other people see the patients in the studies that I do. But what I've tended always to do is to do a pilot study before we begin the full study, and I always see some of the patients in, in the pilot phase. So I get a feel of, of, of how the protocol's running, what it's really like to be in this study. Um, does this work for patients? Does it work for the clinicians whom I've asked to do the study? And then I, I've always maintained a, a small private practice. And um, I think that's been particularly important because the longer I've worked with depression and the longer I've worked with manic depressive illness, the more convinced I am that these are lifelong disorders. Even unipolar depression in most cases turns out to be a lifelong thing. What having a private practice has done has enabled me to follow people for very long periods of time and really see how, um, how the recovery process evolves. Um, there is one woman whom I've been seeing now for almost 28 years, and to have that long-term perspective has really been a blessing. Well, certainly we, we talk about these illnesses as, as lifelong illnesses, but, uh, but there's another concept that's, that's very hot in the mental health world, in some circles anyway, in the mental health world right now, and that's the concept of recovery. It's certainly something we talk about a lot at DBSA. What, is, what does that mean to you in practice? Well, recovery means, in, it, to me, um, is something that we've always striven for. In fact, I think you and I have talked about how I just didn't quite get the whole recovery concept, the recovery movement, because it didn't occur to me that a clinician would ever be interested in anything other than seeing patients get to recovery. Part of that's because most of the work I've done has focused on long-term maintenance treatments. So you can't do the experiment of whether treatment A works better than treatment B to maintain recovery until you get patients to recovery. But it finally dawned on me that unfortunately there are all too many clinicians and all too many patients who accept a partial response to treatment, not a full recovery of their symptoms. The other thing that I think is so important in thinking about recovery is, is the, the, the recovery of function. So we're not just talking about um, getting rid of the sleep disturbance and the appetite disturbance and the difficulty concentrating, but we're actually focusing on how is this individual functioning in his or her major life roles. The, uh, uh, certainly it is unfortunate that, uh, that not all providers uh, really look at, at, at these illnesses as, as, as having recovery as the goal. And, and, and I know something that you've talked about recently is the need for the mental health community to, to rethink its idea of, of outcomes, the outcomes that, that we're researching for. Help, help our listeners understand why that's important. Well, I think for way too long, you know, maybe we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much because we're really a very young field. If you think about it, we've only really had efficacious treatments for mental disorders for something like 40 years. So compared to surgery or compared to hematology, you know, this is a very young field in terms of treatment outcome research. Um, 
But I, I think initially we focused on the symptoms that defined the disorder, and, and, and that was appropriate. Um, we were happy to have clear definitions of the disorder, something we really didn't have until DSM-3. Once we had those clear definitions of what the symptoms were that went to make up a major depressive episode or went to make up an episode of mania, we focused on making sure those symptoms had gone away. But we missed the fact that the symptoms can go away and functional recovery still may not have occurred. We also missed the fact that patients can persist with symptoms if they feel like their life is going okay despite the symptoms. So what we really need to be asking patients from my perspective is how is the disorder interfering with your life right now? And what would it mean, how would you define that interference going away? If you tell me that you're so irritable that you're fighting with your wife five times a week and it would be important to get that down to once a month because that's sort of where things were before you became depressed. That's a really clear, definable target that we can work toward. Um, now, obviously, I think getting the irritability down, irritability being a symptom of depression in my book, um, getting that irritability down is going to lead to fewer fights with your wife, but we ought to be targeting the fights with the wife, not just the irritability. That's really, that's really a different way of, mm -hmm. of looking at it, I think, of really looking at, you know, how really making our lives better as opposed to just reducing the symptoms, which may or may not do that. And I think that's... And, that's and I, think, I think, you know, if, if we just say, oh, um, is your irritability any better, um, that's not so meaningful. In, in, so the patient says, yeah, my irritability is better. But if, if we say, how many, how many times did you fight with your wife in the last week? And the patient can say, none. And what about the week before? Well, we had a little three-minute argument, but we resolved it. And then remind the patient of how different that is um, from how things were going when treatment started. Then the patient really can feel like treatments had an important impact on his life. Well, it also sounds like that would be something that would motivate me more to adhere to a treatment strategy. That exactly, it... exactly. So you help me define what outcomes are important to you. You monitor whether those things are changing. And then, yeah, you feel more inclined to stick with the treatment if those things are changing. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, we've we've had conversations like this before. Uh, uh, we, I'm not sure we've been recorded when we've had them before. But uh, but in your mind, what what role do you think people living with mental illnesses should have in the education of their healthcare providers? Well, I think we need to do a whole kind of paradigm shift in this regard. Um, all of medicine, I think, has had a fairly paternalistic. Uh, at least all of American medicine has had a fairly paternalistic attitude um, toward patients. But I think that's been particularly strong in psychiatry and in the mental health field. Um, 
my own view is that we need to open up much more of a dialogue between patients and clinicians. We've always, I mean, it, you know, I don't, there's a series of seven dirty words on the, on the DBSA um, website, but I'm not sure if this is one of them, but one of my least favorite words is compliance, because that implies all that paternalistic stuff. And we've always talked in, in our program about alliance, that what we really want is a, a good alliance with patients and a good alliance with patients' family members. And if we take that attitude, it's going to lead to the kinds of questions well, how has this depression really made your life different? And what would be important to you to change in, in terms of the things that have happened to you since you became depressed? Um, I, but I think often it, it is incumbent on patients, and this is so hard to say to someone who's depressed and depleted of energy and depleted of their assertive capacity to begin with, Unfortunately, often it's important that patients say, excuse me, wait a minute, <laughs> I'd like your attention for a second here. Um, I, I don't think you're quite hearing what I'm saying. What's really important to me is not how many times I wake up in the middle of the night, but whether I'm able to get up and get my kids off to school. That's, a, that's an important distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, you, in, in talking about uh, what, what really is a, an interesting concept of, of having patients uh, be, have a role in, mm -hmm. in the education of their providers, mm -hmm. uh, I'll let our listeners know that uh, DBSA has recently launched training services. That's uh, certainly something that I work on a lot, but training services uh, for healthcare providers that are delivered, designed and delivered from the perspective of, of us, people living with these illnesses. Now you and your colleagues at, at, at the University of Pittsburgh and, and the Western Psychiatric Institute recently experienced DBSA's, what we call, Making Recovery Real training program. Uh -huh. What was what was that experience like? And, and, oh, it, yeah. was, it was very interesting because um, I think in our depression and manic depression prevention program, we pride ourselves on having pretty good attitudes and being pretty open to um, hearing what patients have to tell us rather than just talking at patients. And still, although that's been the, the, the whole concept of alliance with patients rather than compliance has been our mantra for 20 years, there were still things that we were able to learn, um, still things that we hadn't really thought about in terms of how we could make our program more con consumer friendly. Do you think uh, do you think that that program or a program like that, a, a, a training program, an educational program for providers from the perspective of people living with mental illness, do you think that can be valuable to other healthcare providers? And, and how do you see that playing out? Absolutely, um, I think, and I think it could be incredibly valuable. I think the most important thing is to. Um, get an accurate pre-assessment of where the provider is so that the training really begins where the provider needs to move. Um, as I said, I think our group was pretty far along in that process, and it took you guys, uh, you know, an hour or so to, to sort of sure. realize how far along we were and kind of get get the program to really be 
um, meaningful to where we needed to be moved. And so, uh, when, but I think once you assess where providers are in terms of their attitudes and, and their thinking about consum- consumer involvement in, in, in treatment, um, consumer involvement in treatment decision-making, um, that this can be an enormously valuable aid to just becoming better clinicians. You know, we were we were very lucky to have an audience uh, like your audience that that really was uh, very friendly to uh, to the messages and, and to the philosophies uh, that, that we kind of bring to the table. And I think uh, uh, well, one thing I know is is that uh, there is room for uh, for our voice out there in the world. Uh, Absolutely, I think about it a lot, um, like. Um, uh, any kind of sensitivity training, whether we're talking about training with respect to ethnic diversity or any kind of sensitivity training, we all have room to improve. And I think even the most sensitive clinicians will find that there are nuances that they really had not thought about yet and can benefit from this kind of open, uh, uh, open, collaborative dialogue with uh, with patients. And it's so encouraging to hear from you and from other providers that I've spoken with uh, uh, about the support for the concept of alliances. Uh, the, the patient provider alliance certainly isn't a new concept, but it but it is one that uh, a lot of a lot of our constituents, a lot of the four million people that contact us every year, say they wish they had more of. And and it's 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 encouraging to to hear that from you and also to. Uh, to have experienced uh, uh, you and the staff uh, at, in, in Pittsburgh uh, and, and how true that is uh, to, your, to your way of practice. Well, we, to be honest, thought of it as not just benefiting patients, but as benefiting the whole research enterprise. If there's a good alliance, you know, we spend a tremendous amount of effort to uh, recruit individuals into our, our treatment studies to do the baseline assessment that allows us to decide where treatment needs to go, um, where it needs to begin, and what we need to accomplish. Um, And all that investment is lost if we haven't created an environment where patients want to adhere to treatment. Our treatment studies have tended to have the lowest withdrawal rates of any place in the country. And people are always asking me, how do you do it? And I think it, it's about an attitude that we hope is apparent the minute the patient walks through our door. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's wonderful to hear. And, and, and it's even more encouraging to hear uh, how, how much that gets results for you. And what, what, what? I mean, I think everybody benefits. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we have certainly benefited in terms of being able to get clear answers out of the studies we do because generally 85 to 90% of the patients we bring into our studies are still with us at the end of the study. Well, Dr. Frank, thank you so much for joining us, and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again for, uh, uh, for the opportunity to have worked with your staff in the past, and uh, I, I hope I get to again. Well, it was our pleasure having you here, and it was my pleasure talking with you today. This has been another installment of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This has been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. 
For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help. Thank you.